This special clever extra is made possible by Rhode Island School of Design. And that's, a, that's the truth. We're born with this. It's hardwired in us. The idea of creativity is not an exclusive thing. It's how we manage the world. It's how we get ourselves through things. It's how we sort of wrestle with the mystery, this incredible grand mystery of creation. And creativity is just an echoing act to sort of celebrate this damn mystery and try to at least wrestle it into shape. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. This is a special episode that was taped live at Rhode Island School of Design as the keynote presentation of Design Week Rhode Island and features four short interviews with notable design thinkers around the central topic of creativity. As a social value, creativity often gets relegated to the domain of pure aesthetics or icing on the cake, if you will, rather than being recognized as the fundamental impulse and effort behind every single creation. Here, with panelists Roseanne Summerson, Sarah Osana, Umberto Krenka, and Sophie Chan, we are discussing creativity as a core component of personal empowerment. It's a mindset and a life skill that each and every one of us is born with and can strengthen with training. Welcome to Design Week. This is our sixth annual event. My name is Lisa Carnival. I'm the co-founder and executive director of Design by Rhode Island. Tonight is a very special occasion at Design Week Rhode Island. We are excited to be joined by Amy Devers, a RISD alum and co-host of Clever, a podcast about design. Amy and her co-host, Jamie Derringer, started Clever as they wanted to create a platform for design and designers to tell their story. For them, they see design as universal. In their words, every object, system, and environment in the built world has been designed. We agree. Design by Rai was founded to highlight design, and importantly, design's necessity. It's true, Rhode Island's design talent is vast and potent. It sometimes lies underneath the surface, but design is part of the state's DNA. For this, it felt an obvious quest. Tonight, Amy and her guests will take us on an exploration of how we understand and nurture creativity in all of us. It's a perfect finale to the Design Week featured speaker series. I'm excited for tonight's conversation with Amy and some of Rhode Island's creative superstars. Thank you, Amy, for joining us. And thank you all for being part of Design by Rhode Island and Design Week Rhode Island. Thank you very much to Design Week Rhode Island and RISD for hosting us tonight. But most of all, huge thanks to all of you for coming out to spend the night with us. We're really excited to see you here. So tonight we're here to talk about creativity. And we need to dispel some of the pervasive myths that are still out there in our culture that are dissuading some people from owning their creativity which we think is a really powerful and important thing for everyone to do. We think it's a fundamental skill set that applies across all industries, all areas of life, and ultimately 
all the complex challenges we face in the world. So empowering people to access and own their creativity serves everyone. Keep championing what I believe to be the ultimate human resource, creativity. So with that, let me give you an idea of how this is going to go down. We are recording a podcast. I'm going to do four lightning round interviews, one after the other, with each person. And we're going to dispel some myths about creativity and talk about how it has served us in our lives and how we believe it can serve others. And then we're going to open it up for a Q&A from the audience. Ready to get started? Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming. I'm Sarah Osana. I'm a designer of product, um, furniture, lighting, and so forth. Also interior architecture, set design for theater. I also am the um, co-founder of ONG Studio and former co-owner and an educator as well. And why I do it? It allows me the ability to affect the most change in the world in the most kind of efficient, quickest, and direct fashion, and to also collaborate with others, um, other like-minded people. How would you define creativity, and at what point did you recognize creativity as a necessary life skill? So for me, my personal definition of creativity is um, the ability to improvise within a given set of restraints. So I find that when you're limited in certain ways or there's constraints, you you have to kind of see things that maybe aren't there. Um, you have the ability to um, create and kind of go down a road maybe someone else hasn't gone before. And for me, it really started at a young age. I I struggled a lot as a child. I had a difficult childhood. I learned at, at an early age not to take things at face value. And creativity for me was a way to kind of add order and uh, to a, like a complex and unpredictable world. I actually had, um, I grew up in Arizona, in Tucson, Arizona, and my, I had a very mercurial father. He was actually involved in a lot of clandestine activities, not violent, but illegal nonetheless. And just to be honest with everybody, because I think authenticity is important in your story and owning who you are, he was um, a drug trafficker. We were in Arizona. He stopped when I was in my 20s, but what it, what it did was I had a lot of instability as a child. We did amazing things. He was an amazing father in certain ways and an amazing parent. We would travel and do all kinds of amazing things. I had a motorcycle at five. I you know, was flying an airplane with him at eight. You know, we traveled all the time, but then he would disappear for months at a time. So for me, creativity was a necessity. It was, it wasn't a luxury or an aesthetic pursuit. It was the way that I kind of imposed order and predictability in a situation that I struggled with, um, being kind of surrounded by adults who I necessarily couldn't really depend on. That's interesting to hear you say that because most of us kind of associate in a general way of creativity as a way of thinking outside the box and coming up with um, ideas that um, kind of cut through established protocols. But you needed creativity to make sense of your world and to find some things that you could rely on. Can you give us some specific examples? You know, I spent a lot of time alone. Um, I, and if I wasn't, I was with a lot of adults, like I said. So I was using make-believe and, um, and art 
and and at the time I didn't know it was design at the time, but design to kind of define a world for me that made sense around me. For example, I did my my mother put me in, in a lot of art classes and a lot of kind of enrichment, which was great. So I did the ceramics class at the Tucson Museum of Art um, when I was probably about six. And I didn't realize it the day that I went, but half of the class was blind students. And so I was, I befriended this boy and he, we were doing, you know, like coil pots and pinch pots and so forth. And he did this mask, like a face. And it was the most amazing thing. It was actually leagues above anything that any of the sighted students had done. And I, it just reinforced in me that something that, you know, you can't take anything at face value and creativity really kind of is all around you and and is a tool, you know, for anyone to kind of use in their experience. It it sounds to me like it was also a way for you to process emotions that you might not have had language or a voice for. Maybe you didn't have ears that were sympathetic to what you needed to process, or maybe you didn't even have the language to articulate it. Mm -hmm. But through creativity, you could express and process and sort out what was going on in your life. And in many ways, sort of, you learned early that you had to create your own life and your own path for yourself. You know, it's funny because I identified pretty early that I had a knack for these things, like I said, you know, in the arts and painting, drawing, and music. And and then it also kind of translated in eventually into um, athletics as well. So that's my next question. Uh, (laughs) What's a myth about creativity that you'd like to dispel? So I think one of the myths I'd like to dispel is that it's it's kind of focused on these certain disciplines that are expected that everybody understands in the arts. I mean, for me, I what I struggled with so much growing up was as I got older and I realized I could collaborate with others in sports, um, I found that I had to compartmentalize myself. So I was like the artist athlete or the athlete artist. And I actually think creativity is born of rigor and discipline and mastery of something. In my case, it's a few, it's many things, but in, with athletics particularly, I, I feel like my sport was basketball. I played division one basketball in college. I think sports are extremely creative when you have mastery of something, you're collaborating with others, and you improvise in a situation that you've trained over and over and over again within. And it's when in sports, it's more akin to being in like a pocket. So you're in that pocket or like in the zone, what people call in the zone, when you've done something so many times you don't think anymore and you don't have those kinds of limitations on what you can achieve or imagine. And then you're doing it with all these other people. And it's really an intoxicating experience to experience that kind of like physically and um, sensorially, emotionally, and, and artistically. You know, and I believe actually that creativity, I think we're all born creative personally. That's a worldview that I have. I think everyone is born creative. We're all born creative in our own individual way. And it's it's kind of like life and the restrictions and the desire culturally that we have for um, predictability and fitting in that kill that in us. And if you can have people in your life that are champions of who you are as an individual and who nurture that and who are mentors for you and who can show you a path for your own voice, and that can happen at any age, really, then it kind of allows that creativity to to come out. And it could be in, in any form. I mean, I think that the sports thing, I think, is related to, to like, for example, dance. You know, dance is considered a kind of creative pursuit. But I f- feel like dance, I see dancers more as athletes. 
in some ways I was like, oh, I should have been just in dance. I don't know if I would have been good at it, but, um, you know, I, cause I think that we have, as a society, we, we legitimize certain types of creativity and not others. And I think that that's, we're doing a disservice to kind of the abilities that kind of we have as a collective and what we can bring to, to things and bring creativity and design thinking into everything that we do. Agreed. And speaking of that, um, I know you've been doing a lot of research and investigation into design for well-being mm-hmm. and the aging community. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can talk about how a creativity applies here. So I, what I didn't mention was that my father passed away last August of cancer. Um, and that was a huge shift in my life and my focus and what I'm what I've been doing. So he lived for about two months after his diagnosis. And in that time, we went to the Mayo Clinic for a second opinion. And I was thrust into this. I took a leave of absence from my, from ONG. And I was thrust into this healthcare system. Um, and of course, the Mayo Clinic is, you know, one of the premier ones. But he was 66. So it was just in general, kind of the healthcare experience and what you go through as a caregiver and in your family. And then he went directly into hospice because he opted out of treatment. So that experience personally, I thought, you know, the first thing I thought of doing when I went through that with him was I need to write a letter like, this is ridiculous. I, this is, I can't believe or not, there's not more attention being paid to this. And then I was like, no, I don't need to write a letter. I need to do, solve this through design. And I started my studio, Studio Mo, Michael Osana named after him. Really, it's about drawing attention to cultural blind spots in humanity and kind of, I was like, what's the deal with the aging population? Why aren't we paying more attention to this? We're all going to be there eventually. Um, and then with the baby boomers coming up and that kind of, it was, it was just appalling to me that it wasn't being spoken about more. Maybe it's not sexy enough. Maybe, you know, it's not kind of, you know, interesting or, or people don't think that it's culturally viable, which it completely is. I think in many cases it's that people don't know what to do right. because they're not flexing their creative thinking muscles. Exactly. So I created the studio to try to give an umbrella to the sense of like the issue of the aging population in society, rethinking hospice design, rethinking healthcare, um, and assisted living. And I have a, a research fellow and a, and a colleague who is the uh, my process architect working out of Portland, and we've been doing all of this research, kind of preparing a presentation. We would like to do a symposium or some sort of think tank on it and then just start to really draw attention to this subject. And and that's just, you know, for me, I, I feel like the creat- where creativity comes into play here is, you know, I had this experience, and I couldn't help with my father, like, seeing the hospice, even though it was, it was in-home hospice, but seeing that hospice experience and saying, like, how could this be better? Where are the death doulas? You know, like, why don't I have a way to cope with this with him as a caregiver and the support? You know, why is the bed that they delivered too small for him? You know, he was 6'3". Like, that's ridiculous. You know, like, I, it's just, it goes on and on. And, and so I saw all of these issues as things that could be solved with creativity and design. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And now you're using your creative brain to solve those problems. That's right. Go, Sarah. In what surprising ways has creativity training served you in your life and career? We just right. heard about an, an amazing project that you're working on, but right. like what, what surprising ways did it show up that you weren't maybe even expecting? Well, Roseanne was talking about the, all the businesses in the area in Rhode Island. I, and for me, I mean, I started ONG Studio 10 years ago, co-founded it, and I... At the time, I hadn't studied business. I hadn't studied um, 
finance or any of these things. And, and I actually just applied creativity and design thinking to, you know, the entire process from the ground up to the point where, you know, we were designing Excel. We were taking Excel and customizing it for our order boards and for everything that went within the business internally to like process creep in the shop to like, you know, hiring and HR and just kind of diving in and, and again, like seeing things, you know, I really think it's about seeing things differently or seeing things that maybe others don't or may not be there. It's a broad answer to what you're asking, but I think my, the 10 years, the 10 year tenure that I had at my, at my studio is an example of every day was an exercise in creativity. So you started a design company and you designed but you were actually applying a lot of your creativity to the business aspect of your design exactly. company. Yeah. It was a, uh, I mean, honestly, and a lot of people here who have companies like this wouldn't, will agree. You end up kind of doing more of that than the designing, you know, in the, when you're in the middle of it. And then you try to carve out the time to design again after. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure Bert's dealt with this with AS220. Like you, you know, you think you're kind of, you're in the middle of it and then all of a sudden it's meetings and this and that and numbers and that. And, but actually I really enjoyed that part of it because I saw that as an outlet for my creativity. And like Roseanne was saying earlier about being agile, mm-hmm. nimble, really looking at a problem and seeing that all the different facets of it and maybe solving it in a way that's unpredictable and, um, applying it to yourself. And I think, you know, with, with, with ONG, I, I feel, the 10 years that I was with it, it was very successful. It achieved what I wanted it to and made a name for itself in design and in domestic manufacturing and identity. So I was happy with the outcome. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. My name is Sophie Chen. I am a fifth year at RISD studying architecture. Um, and I am studying architecture because I am interested in deploying it for social change. Deploying it for social change. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you define creativity? And at what point did you recognize creativity as a necessary life skill? I realized that I needed to be creative when I was quite young. Um, I grew up super, super shy. So I spent my whole childhood just looking at people. Um, and I, through that, I realized the, now I have the words for it. I didn't then. Um, but the inherent power dynamics, whenever I entered a room, how people would treat me, how people would treat my mom, who looks completely different from me. And through that, I, I began to imagine new spaces where people look like me or everyone was treated with the same amount of respect wherever they'd go. Um, and so I, looking back, I think that I was kind of theorizing um, creatively about my own environments because I didn't feel like I had a space where I belonged. And so I think that's kind of how I um, came into my own kind of creativity and through that my own agency. What's a common myth about creativity that you'd like to dispel or that you've witnessed in your life? I'm really interested in the idea that creativity um, can propel justice. I think that um, to have a more equitable society, we have to imagine things that don't exist right now because there are so much crap in the world right now. Um, and the only way we get out of it is if we stop accepting it, but also if we imagine different ways to do things. Um, and that's really where I see the power of creativity. 
Right. We can complain about things, but it's far more effective to complain about things and have a solution to the problem kind of ready to go, or at least an idea that could work. So how has your creativity informed your identity and vice versa? How's your identity informed your creative work? Yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, I, I think from an early age, I realized that creativity was kind of my my escape card or my way out of situations that I was frustrated in. And so even coming to RISD, I kind of knew this might be a stretch to say, but I never felt like I was that artistic, but I felt like I was inherently creative. And I think that's where interesting conversations about artists versus designers come in, um, which we can have. Um, when I was coming into my own creativity, I found my own agency. And so as I've been going through that process, um, I've been realizing that flexing creativity um, is coming in new forms. Whenever I'm in a leadership position, there's probably not many people that look like me that have been in that position before. Um, and so I'm even being creative when I'm leading people because it hasn't existed before. And I also really believe creativity is about forming relationships between people, between people in space, between space and their environments being able to even further those relationships and help other people see those relationships is super, super fundamental to how creativity works. In what surprising ways has your creativity training served you in your life and career? I think not super recently, about three years ago, um, I got a fellowship. Um, it's called the Maharam Fellowship. And its entire intention is to place artists and designers in fields they wouldn't typically be in. So, of course, I jumped at that chance to be creative outside of creative fields. But I was working in City Hall um, for the City of Providence. And I was in um, the mayor's office for city services. So I was in the 311 office. So someone had um, a tree that fell down or their sidewalk was busted um, or they forgot to pick up their trash. They would call us. And so I was I was interested in that office because it's the one place in municipal government where people offer their feedback. You know, um, most of the time in government, they're just doing things. And even if it's planning, they might have one meeting where, you know, they invite the neighbors. But if you have a kid, you can't come or if you work late, you can't come. And so it's really hard for people to actually interface with municipal government. Um, so I was like, we have this wealth of information that people are offering. We're not, you know, we're not pestering them, they're literally giving it to us. And so I was interested in how you translate the information that was given to the larger questions. You know, is there a correlation between the number of downed trees and a high school graduation rate? How can those smaller things inform larger planning projects? But while I was there, um, I think I was so surprised that because I was in government and because I was in a place where there I mean, I don't think anyone in that office I worked in considered themselves an artist or designer. They didn't have the capacity to answer the questions that I was asking them um, because they couldn't see it, they couldn't visualize, they'd never been trained um, to think about things not more efficiently, but just differently. So I actually spent the second half of that summer running design thinking workshops for them. So just so we could be on the same page. Um, so I, I roped in friends that I had made throughout the summer, um, the Office of Innovation, the Healthy Homes Office, um, and really just went through a basic design thinking exercise um, to show them wherever they are in their jobs, 
there's always a way to think around something or to, again, connect things or form relationships that don't exist. How did that go over? They went over pretty well. They were all really receptive for it. Um, and I, I think it's integral to understanding, you know, that creativity helps you imagine worlds that don't exist yet. Um, and it helps you reframe things in ways that, you know, you didn't even consider before. Did you see some light bulbs go off in their heads? I mean, did you feel their enthusiasm for seeing what doesn't exist and, and maybe unlocking some doors for like how they might create new systems? I, I definitely did. Um, unfortunately, it was just a summer. And as most projects do, they have to end. Um, and so that's something I'm, I'm definitely thinking about even for my thesis this year um, and hope to really kind of poke out more moving forward. All right. Thank you, Sophie. My name is Bert Krinker. I'm an artist, I'm formerly the founder and artistic director of AS220 for something 30 some odd years, a creative community that developed three buildings in the city that has an equal pay policy and open on jury and sense environment with multiple points of access. Uh, next question. <laughs> How do you define creativity and at what point did you recognize creativity as a necessary life Didn't happen skill? that way at all. Tell me how it did happen then. I'm a first-generation American. The word creativity, I don't even think, was used in my household my entire upbringing. There was no, there was no room for that. They both worked. My parents worked in factories. There was no art in the house. My father sang a few lines from Osolomia over and over again, and that was about as much culture as that I had. Well, that's not true. My father's a merchant marine and told me a lot of stories about a lot of different people all over the world. And that was sort of my cultural integration, if you will, or assimilation to various cultures. Didn't happen like that. Uh, sixth grade nun, my mother was put in uh, an asylum when I was in the sixth grade. She had a great life. She was a fabulous woman. Uh, but I saw her carried out of the house in a straitjacket. I was very, um, very uh, angry. And I was very capable of disrupting a class of 40 or 50 kids and the nuns had this feeling that they were the authority in the room, which I wasn't convinced of. And um, <laughs> they, this one time, she was walking down the car, she had a book with little elves on it, and she said, walk by me, and she said that she wanted these drawn large for the blackboard when he used to decorate the blackboard. Pretty creative enterprise in and of itself. She walked by me, and it always puzzles me how I got adults to act like children, but and said, you wouldn't be interested in walk by me. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What is it you want me to do? I spent all night doing, making sure these were perfect because this was a challenge and I wasn't losing because there was a little power struggle going on. Came in and then the bell went off for her. So anytime there was something, National Book Week, oh, Umberto, make me a poster or this or that. And that's where the plant, that's where things got seeded. And still, I don't know if the word creativity was introduced into that uh, interaction. But it brings up a different point to me. You know, art and culture and design is a privilege in this country, not a common experience, exposure to these things. And that is appalling. And certainly more countries that are far more progressive, uh, far more enlightened in terms of exposing young people to these processes and this way of thinking, uh, which is better for everybody. Where were we? 
Well, you designed a poster, it turned on a light in your head, and then you got political. Oh, so the point of what I was trying to say, thank you for your help, Amy. Yeah. Amy said, don't worry about preparing too much. So it's all on her. Um, yeah, uh, we and, like and, it. I mean, if, and, and I forget where I am all the you, time. Go where you go. I'll bring uh, but it back. But it seems relatively pleasant. The point I want to make is, like, I, I've done a lot of talks, and I've done a lot of talks to middle school, high school kids, college kids, and almost always, if I ask who who identifies as an artist or a maker, if you will, or generally, if I ask them the question, they can remember a single person who gave them positive reinforcement when they were very young. And if I ask the same question to the people who do not identify as that, they can remember a single person who discouraged them. It's as simple as that. We are all born obviously creative. You want to talk about my purple sneakers, right? Which obviously are the best shoes in, at the panel discussion here. <laughs> and for your podcast people, they're purple velvet covered sneakers. No, they're good. The socks are good. No, I, but that, come on, right? But it, it raises a point. You know, a lot of times when I'm talking to middle school kids or young kids, I'll, I'll say, you're all artists. Say, what are you talking about? I'm not an artist. My cousin's an artist. He can draw a dragon. And I say, well, Jesus, you know, you don't look like the kid next to you. You made, you got up in the morning and made aesthetic choices about an image that you want to project to the world. And every single human being does that on a daily basis. I want to be a wise guy today. I put my leather jacket on. I want to lay back. Maybe I'll do tan, right? That's the truth. We're born with this. It's hardwired in us. The idea of creativity is not an exclusive thing. It's how we manage the world. It's how we get ourselves through things. It's how we sort of wrestle with the mystery, this incredible grand mystery of, cre- of the creation. And creativity is just an echoing act to clumsy to sort of celebrate this damn mystery and try to at least wrestle it into shape. You know, and then every single human being in every creative act that they do, they're adding to the vocabulary. You know, that's what it's all about. You know, when you talk about a kid from a poor neighborhood as opposed to a kid who comes, who comes from a wealthy background, it's a matter of vocabulary. When I taught at the renowned training school, the juvenile prison, I would say, do you know the word you or chroma? They didn't know that. I say, you know the word carburetor? They knew the word carburetor, right? It's a matter of vocabulary. Now, that vocabulary can be support an elitist, classist way of thinking, or that vocabulary can be offered to anybody and everybody, and that's our public education, isn't it? Right? Hey. I don't know where we are. You want to go backwards now? Let's well, go to no, another question. I, I have a question, because I, I love everything you're saying, but I, but I do need to wrangle you a little bit. Please. At some point, somebody asked you to design a poster. Yes. You had no exposure to creativity in your family, in your household. Yes. So that turned on something for you. Between the poster and founding AS220, which is a mission to provide a creative work. Yeah. And what happened for you personally? A little bit of positive reinforcement that got repeated a few times over and over again when I did it again and I did Mm -hmm. it again. But I didn't really wasn't a practicing artist by any stretch of the imagination. I was a practicing semi-wise guy, right? And I volunteered myself into a program which was uh, run by a drug rehab program. It was an outreach program. Um, and I was in an encounter group one time, and I was sitting there, and uh, some of these ex-heroin uh, uh, addicts and addicts of different types, I wasn't a heroin addict, asked me what I did besides being a wise guy because they said, you're not really that good at it. The response was, and two, the response was, oh, I'm an artist. Because that had been reinforced in me, even though I wasn't a practicing artist. 
So they said, why don't you go to the art store and get some stuff and start making some art? And I remember I went into the art store and I walked around and I started to get incredibly anxious. Um, there was so many things there, so many choices. No one had trained me. I left. I didn't buy a thing. I didn't ask a question. Then in another session, uh, I was questioned like, did you go to the art store? What's going on? And I says, oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I went, you know. Uh, no, what's up? And I told him. And there was a Rizzi student who was had had uh, some issues with alcohol and stuff and was involved in the program. And she says, I'll take you to the art store. And not only did she take me to the art store, and this goes back to the whole class thing. She took me through RISD, through some of the shops and stuff. And I'm like, oh, my God. You can do this? This is unbelievable. And then the other thing that was so profound, in them days, RISD's museum was really difficult to understand where the entrance was and everything. It looked like another mansion on the street. They hadn't built a contemporary part of it. I'd never been in the RISD museum in my life. I grew up in this town. I didn't know it existed. And she took me to the museum, and she said, this place is for you. And I went there every week. And I would stare at paintings like so intensely. I'd stand for like a half hour in front of one painting with the hope that somehow it would make an impression. And when I went back to my studio, I'd be able to do what I saw, which took a whole long time to be able to do that. And throwing paintings and punching walls and stuff. That was the wise guy side. Um, then I'd label the holes in the ceiling, you know, frustration one, frustration two, you know. That's that, the creative dude, that's side. That's some good art, right? Yeah. Uh, Maybe I can go into a museum, punch some holes. Be great. Can I do that over here, Roseanne? Um, so anyway, I mean, and then like the next question, all right? Do your job. I'll let you do your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly, that validation, that reinforcement was a, an incredible catalyst for personal Absolutely. transformation in you. Absolutely. And then you've turned around and you've created a space and a mechanism and a mentorship system that allows for creativity to be introduced to people who don't necessarily get introduced to it by family, academia, and culture. And I and a lot of people. Yeah. You know, yeah. And that's a really important thing and because if it, it belongs to the community. I agree. It belongs to everyone. And the problem is, as a culture, we don't, we still think it's for the creative types. But the creative types are everyone. And it doesn't mean that if you learn to harness your creativity or leverage your creativity, that you have to go in a creative profession or what's considered a creative profession. It just means you now have a really useful skill to bring into anything you choose to do in life. But you've said something to me that you witnessed personal transformation close up and you've been there when you've seen it start to happen. What is that? What does it look like? Well, I'm going to give you the example of Angel Newman, who is now program director at ASA 20. She started at ASA 20 when she was 14. Her and her sister used to, in a very crowded house, used to uh, do some dancing in front of a mirror and uh, got involved with our youth program. It's kind of a long story, but that providing a simple venue and opportunity for her to evolve um, 
that woman now is the director of programming. She became the director of the youth program. She became the director of programming at ASA 20. She just finished her bachelor's degree and just started her on her master's degree. And she's a, a mom with four children that she's raising brilliantly. So that's the kind of thing. I, I've seen, you know. But it all started with? It did provide the opportunity for her to be able to express herself, evolve that, get positive reinforcement, and that, and what that does for our self-confidence, our, 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 the way we perceive ourselves, and all of that. You know, I mean, you know, every human being and living thing, man, there's stuff going on up here. I don't care if you're two years old. There's a whole kinds of processing. There's a whole kind of a lot of observing going on. And without the ability or without the opportunity to be able to express yourself, it's the most stifling, maddening thing. And when we create opportunities through different mediums and vocabularies to be able to allow people to take those observations and share them, because this, this mystery, fundamentally, we do it alone. Uh, and at the end, we're alone. Uh, it, it's, it's a really, it's pretty challenging. And I, I think communication is key to it. You know, and when we talk about empathy and we talk about changing the world, how do those things come about? How do we evolve that if it isn't through communication and getting to know each other? And how do we get to know each other if it isn't with our clumsy efforts of communicating in one way or another? And all of the art forms and design, we express it in a chair. This chair says something different than those chairs, you know, much like what Roseanne was speaking to and what Lisa was speaking to early on, so eloquent. I can I can speak English, um, kinda. I don't know. Where are we now? <laughs> time for Roseanne. Do we use all Thank our time you, yet? Bert Cranker, oh no, we got no. We talking. Don't we ever? Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity, Amy. I'm Roseanne Summerson, president of RISD, which is comprised of a college and a museum, and I'm also a furniture designer, writer, and a few other things. <laughs> How would you define creativity, and at what point did you recognize it as a necessary life skill? I would define creativity as following Bert on a panel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I, I, Bert touched on it, but within the root of the word creativity is creation. And so I, I look at creativity as um, thinking about creation from a unique and individual independent voice. Uh, I would also say that um, creativity is a byproduct of curiosity and that um, a lot of individuals aren't nurtured in their ability to live through their curiosity. And if they are given the opportunity or just driven, as other panelists have said, to do that on their own, they don't recognize their own creativity. Not recognizing your own creativity is the real problem we're trying to solve here, isn't it? I think it's a I think that that as children or as individuals in different stages of our lives we are often uh, forced into a kind of judgment structure that's really destructive. And um, for me as a teacher for decades, a lot of the way that I approached education was not that I had information that I was trying to transfer to someone else, but that I was creating conditions for other people to find their own voices, their own ideas, and pushing their, their judgment to the side and saying, 
maybe think about something this way. How does that resonate? And, you know, sometimes they would say that has no interest to me and they'd push back and find another way to come at it. But it's the idea that our culture really does not breed our ability to live through our curiosity in its own time frame, in its own location, in its own bumpiness. And our educational system is actually, in most cases, very opposite to that. There are exceptions, but if we can learn to nurture and then provide tools for individuals to explore their own curiosity, our society would advance in a much more important way. I agree with that. And you said something that I think is kind of at the the root of this, which is the judgment structure that people are forced into is the reason why other people don't feel like providing, nurturing the creativity and providing the tools is something that's necessary. They've judged it or deemed it unnecessary. So how do we dismantle that judgment structure and change people's perceptions about the value of creativity um, across all areas of functioning. Yeah, I think that it it is a restructure of our um, educational system. I think, too, that mentoring and providing examples, I mean, it's interesting that everyone's stories about their own creative lives here tonight have been about finding a way through adversity, finding a way to create a sort of, not so much survival, because I wouldn't say it's to that degree, but to find a way to find yourself within an adverse situation. And I think that's true for a lot of individuals who become creative practitioners. There are also examples of people that have these wonderful nurtured lives that develop creativity differently, but there's a kind of hunger that I've seen over time with individuals who because the the standard mainstream path just didn't work for them, they've learned skills, life skills, and personal skills that take them to the edges, and often in the edges are the most interesting places of unseen works of creation. So I think that there is a myth about the, the suffering and starving artist, although there are examples where that is the case. But I don't think it has to be about suffering. I just think it has to be about finding the space or having the self-drive, the personal drive, to believe that your curiosity has enough value that the things that you want to discover and learn about and try are worth doing. It's very simple, really, but the, the fact is that our cultures and our societies don't always nurture that opportunity. And it's far more difficult for those who don't have the role models to see that there are possibilities that as young children, they may not have within their own kind of realm. One of the things that I champion all the time, because I I hear this story over and over again on Clever, that these people who became, you know, creative professionals, which is who we're talking to on the podcast, they didn't know what it was called or how to study it Mm -hmm. until they stumbled into it somehow or until an eccentric uncle or creative aunt showed them the way. And one of the things I think about is how do we grow up knowing about the fireman and the postman and the nurse 
and the doctor and the lawyer, but nobody really knows what an architect is or a product designer. Why don't we talk about where our plates and cups come from and who designs buildings and why isn't this part of the vernacular that we're talking about with our children? And why are we, how do we get impregnate society with or infect society with the excitement of what creative thinking can unlock for their offspring? Creativity can get you out of the worst jams, man. <laughs> well, I think it is about cultural values. And, you know, when I started as a student at RISD 120 years ago, I um, was uh, shocked because I went into the admissions office and there were, you know, chairs sitting there and things, objects, and I thought, what were these doing here? Were these things that the students were expected to draw or... You know, why were they there? I had so little knowledge of the fact that everything was designed and, and made in some fashion. And, um, and I did not come from a very strong art school. Ba- I mean, I had, didn't have good art in my public school system. So I don't know how I got into RISD, but, um, the notion that, um, exposure to these things is, is so important. And I'm really proud that in our museum, here at RISD, we have um, created a program where we not only invite school children in, but we actually go pick them up and bring them back to their school because the schools didn't have the money for transportation. So we solve that creatively. And then when the kids come to the museum, we give them all tickets to bring their families back for free. So it's this notion of getting that into the, the ethos of the local community, which is really important because that can be the spark that everyone's talked about here, about being exposed to something that opens up an entire world. Well, speaking of opening up an entire world and opening up creativity to the entire world, what opportunities for expanding the pipeline or tinkering with the system do you see to make a more um, inclusive global creative ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, one of the big things that concerns me is that a lot of the judgment piece has a lot of bias built into it. And so it's something we're working on really intentionally here at RISD to understand that actually the, the difference of voices and the difference of life experience and cultures is an incredible incubator for creativity. But if the expectation of what is good work or of what is valued is predisposed to certain kinds of bias, it's a huge limitation. Do you have any examples you can share? I can give an example of um, students that come from certain aesthetic backgrounds that aren't necessarily the backgrounds of what's the the imagined result of a faculty's assignment and a student being critiqued differently because their work falls into a different cultural aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And the idea that... So, so the faculty member may have a sort of European ideal when it comes to something. Yeah, something or, like that. or Yeah, and so we're actually working very carefully here at RISD right now to expand our pedagogy and our curriculum. So we're actually having the opportunity to have teachers take classes to expand their teaching practices here because we, we believe in it. It's a value of the institution. But also um, there are experiences where critics or faculty or peers just cannot understand the life experience of someone. And it's, you know, I was listening to an interview about somebody saying that no matter how much I try, I cannot be black. You know, I'm white. 
So I have to really listen hard when someone, when one of my black colleagues or friends tells me about their experience. I have to value that in a way that is not about... Um, it, it, that, that understanding that I can never feel that feeling, that I can listen, I can participate, but it's not my life, it's not my experience. And just the fact of acknowledging that you don't know something, that you don't know someone's life experience is really important in the creative process. And that can transfer, you know, race is one example, but it, it can transfer on many levels where that sense of bias or that sense of, of standard or what is a good aesthetic is just baked into people's preconceptions. And so in an art and design school environment, we can take that on. But in, you know, in, in other kinds of environments, it's a lot harder because the outcome of creativity is not the valued outcome. It's, it's another kind of expectation. I, that's why I think that creative environments should lead this discussion in other, in, in other applications and circumstances because we, we are like the, you know, we're making the stew here where we can actually prototype different approaches to new solutions to things, to new ideas, to new opportunities, new structures and systems, and then put those out in the world. And that's why this form of education, that's why everyone's creative practice is so vital to advancing societies. This is sort of the, the cultural R&D lab here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's not only art and design schools that do that. There are other forms of education in general does that, but I think education that is, um, in whatever fashion, is opening up the value of individual voices in moving new ideas into existence, which is very much what art school does, um, I think places that do that are more important than ever, particularly when you look at what's happening in the world around us right now, which is doing everything possible to convince us that there's another definition of truth or, you know, another definition of humanity. So it's, it's up to the creative voices who, that have a passion about expressing what their values are, what they're curious about, that can help to broaden the conversation of where we go. Thank you. Well, speaking of broadening the conversation, I want to invite all of you to join the discussion. So if you've got a question, come on down. Thanks to all the panelists. Uh, This was a very stimulating conversation. I want to put this question to any of the panelists that want to ask it, but Sarah had brought up an interesting point about authenticity uh, being sort of at the core of, you know, functioning creatively. So to any of you, when have you been most authentic functioning in your own creative pursuits? I think that's a search. The compelling thing about making art for me is that the last one didn't quite get it, so I got to make another one. And in, and when in doing that, what am I looking for? I'm looking for my authentic self. I'm trying to find that thing that is closer to what it is I'm trying to say and feeling that is so difficult to articulate with our limited vocabularies. So, you know, people say you're prolific. 
Yeah, prolific, because I can't get it. You know, I, I got to make another. One. I keep trying, and I learned something from the last one. So I think that's a, an endless search of what it is, who, what our authentic self is, and how we're going to express that. I think at RISD, there's an interesting struggle when you're here to be authentic, but to also be really good. And you realize that when you're here, those things can be different. And I don't think any of them are here, but you can ask every single architecture professor I've ever had, um, because I will, you know, make my way through the semester. And about now, about, you know, three weeks in, I will just not want to do what they're asking of me ever. Not a single person. That's what I realize now, um, in my, you know, old, uh, old age of 22 years. Um, that's kind of how I found my own authenticity. Just really doing what I'm not supposed to be doing, um, when I'm not interested in it. And it's really served me well. Um, I've <laughs> cut the crap a lot of times and just done things that I wanted to do. Um, and then people start noticing and start conversations and then, not not to validate you, but just to start other interesting things um, is a way to realize that it is authentic and it's a real thing. But you have to trust yourself enough that um, what you're doing is worthwhile, even if it's not what you're supposed to be doing. I think that, as Bert said, it, it shifts and changes through time. So your authentic self is someone different today than it was, you know, five years ago or yesterday in some ways. And so for me at this moment now and I say this to anybody, you know, it's like I'm trying to become more comfortable with being uncomfortable because I feel like in the, in that discomfort, I'm growing and I'm changing. And maybe for a little while I was a little too comfortable, you know? So that's like a daily journey for me. And, and it's a, it's actually really liberating, freeing. And, um, and also just, and I think for students who are, who are, whether you're a grad student or undergrad or whatever, wherever you're at, like you don't have to, be right. You don't have to be perfect. You can be imperfect and, and that's fine. And there's, and you can at any age, that's fine. Cause you're searching and still kind of finding things. And the last thing I ever want to do is, is know everything. Roseanne mentioned that I've, I've hosted a lot of TV shows. That's always a weird exercise in blurry authenticity. I mean, TV shows are, themselves are kind of a construct and there are smoke and mirrors and we're presenting a story for entertainment value that's not necessarily authentic through and through. And at the same time, maybe the intent or the mission is. But then there's this other piece of it where I'm hired to be somebody for the audience that might not line up exactly with who I am. But in order to do what is authentic to me, which is show up, do work hard, and do the best I possibly can, and also achieve the greatest outcome within the parameters, that means I have to conform a bit myself. It's a very weird feeling and I will say that if you don't, if you aren't aware that that's what's going on, which I wasn't all the time, I had to learn that about it, it can feel really awful. But when you make those decisions intentionally and you know which part is coming from the authentic part of you and which part is coming from the desire to create the greatest possible outcome within the parameters, 
then it's much more tolerable. But then you're also really aware of the choices you can make that can drive you towards something that's more authentic. Who's got the next question? Um, I was particularly interested by President Summerson's point in sort of cultural hegemony and design. I grew up in Singapore, so it's an incredibly sort of small and creative place. But still, when I learned design and I was... I was privileged enough to have a design education high school. You know, we still sort of, sort of laud, I think, the best of design as the Bauhaus or all these examples in Europe, which is great. But when we talk about, for example, where I grew up in, it's sort of seen as an outlier rather than a standard. And that makes me particularly interested because I really rarely see sort of good examples, good Asian examples, for example, of design when I'm studying, you know, classical design and what the 30s and 40s, what the Bauhaus, for example, contributed to it. And I'm wondering in sort of expanding design pedagogy, you know, for example, even if it's aging, for example, you know, we talked about and different cultures age differently. Obviously, if you come from an individualistic culture, it's more lonely and from a collectivistic culture, sort of, you come back and live with your children, for example. So I guess as designers, how do you question your assumptions? You don't know what you don't know, but how do you sort of engage with an environment or a team or a product and realize you have assumptions? Like, when, when do you realize that? That's a really good example of the bias piece, because if you look at the work of the Bauhaus designers and the Scandinavian modernists, they were influenced by Asian design. So you're looking at it once removed. So my um, work with students was always about looking deeply into their own personal history, whether it's, you know, their duration of their lives or the duration of the lives of their ancestors or the cultures that they come from. Not everyone know, has the luxury of knowing that, but I've done design workshops in countries around the world, and initially in countries that don't necessarily have strong design educational systems, the first reaction is to imitate something that is a successful design or a successful design idiom. And the minute we break it down into the kind of symbols or textiles or something that has to do with you know a personal history that's when the design starts to get much more interesting, when people start to bring in their own vocabulary into the mix. And I, you know, I think that that's something that um, has also been very interesting to watch in terms of East-West, because there's, uh, I would say, right now, incredible creativity coming out of design cultures in Asia. Again, I mean, for thousands of years, that was the case. But then there became this sort of Eurocentric definition of what was good design. It's changing so rapidly now to something else. So I would just say that um, to trust in the things that are um, parts of your own history, whether they're you know national or cultural or whatever or, or experiential, and use those as instigators in the way that you create your own work. So the discussion about judgment was really something that I thought, well, I've dealt with in my own life, but I know a lot of people I've talked to about uh, creativity have been like, oh, I'm not creative. Like, you know, it, it could be about anything, right? It's like, oh, let's go do a painting class. They're like, oh, I'm not creative. I don't want to do that. Um, so I was curious what any of the panelists thought about. Um, what would you say to encourage somebody who's not creative in a traditional sense to keep trying and keep embracing that side of themselves? Well, the first question I think you should ask is, who told you that? Because there's probably a story there, 
you know, just the, the answer to that. And I think thinking about that, you know, who told you that you weren't creative, whether, you know, whether it's you or someone else, if you can kind of dig down, you can move that to the side, because it's probably somebody that wasn't out to help you, or at least around that issue. But, um, you know, I think the, the hardest judge is ourselves, and um, we're... Bert was saying that he keeps making work because he's trying to make something that he feels gets it. I mean, we're all judging our, ourselves all the time, and it can be seen as a positive thing where it's instigating the next piece, or it can, it can be seen as something that gets in the way. And if it's getting in the way, it's not a good thing. It's an issue. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to give you an anecdotal story, and, and, and I hope you see the connection to your question, uh, but you may not. Uh, <laughs> So I'm teaching in the juvenile prison, and this young man, I'm teaching, they had way too many illegal amount of kids in my class. Uh, we fixed that later, but, and at the end of the class, one of the kids come up to me, he's all pumped up, he's, been, he's in jail for a very serious crime. And he comes up to me, pumps his chest up, I'm getting anxious, a little scared, and he says, I see what you're trying to do here. He says, you think you're going to change me? Or us. He says, you ain't changing me, man. He says, I'm a career criminal. And I got nervous. And then I paused. And I says, you know what? You're not very good at it. He said, what are you talking about? I said, you're in jail. (laughs) Right? A little creativity may even serve your profession. (laughs) I was serious. And when you talk about judgment... I took the judgment out of it, right? I wasn't judging his chosen profession. And the other thing I said to him, I said, you know, don't be offended if I spend a little more time with the other folks who haven't decided what their career is yet. (laughs) I won't try. You know, that kid supported me from that point on. It was unbelievable, right? It was unbelievable. And it was just a moment. Now, I could have acted off fear, but... I suspended judgment for a second, and that accomplished something. I also think it's it's a problem of education. Um, I went K through 12 public school, and not once did I have a class on design. I had classes on art that meant you draw. I'll say it right now. I am not a very good drawer. I think that I'm a designer and I have a lot of other skills that I've learned at RISD and and before, but I'm not a good drawer. And so for me to accept that art equals drawing, like I I would never have gotten here. Um, I was lucky enough to be raised by two parents who study design to kind of know what it was. If not easily, I would have gone into poli sci and went to a liberal arts school. And, And so I really think it's it's super important as we're defining creativity to also say that like design is not being taught. Why don't we have design classes as much as we have art classes or dance classes? I have not seen very many public high schools in this country that offer design um, as maybe a more, a more tangible, a more relatable thing, an entryway into art for different types of people. And so I think there's a, a loss of engagement there that, that makes people afraid to engage with art just because they're not, they don't know what design is. And I'll give you something really practical that you can take to your friend and actually apply right now. I think 
at the root of everyone who thinks that they're not creative is just that they're afraid to be creative because it's a vul- it's an it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable to try something new and not be good at it, but creativity frequently asks you to dig something out of yourself and do something with it and that makes it, it that exposes you in a way that makes people intimidated by the whole thing. So let's say you want to do something creative and your friend says, oh, I'm not creative. I don't want to join you. And you say, oh, well, it's not for you. You'd be helping me. That's one way to take the pressure off of them. Another way is to say, well, everyone's creative. You just got to find the thing that, you know, floats your boat. Or if they even give you a little bit of, of room and say, well, I think I'd like to try something creative, but I'm nervous about it. You say, well, I'll go with you. We'll do this together. Something like that, like, goes an enormous way. And then if you can be the friend that values her creative expression or, you know, that could be the poster that sets the world on fire. Yeah. I think too, that there's a lot of emphasis on the, on the outcome, the, the, the product yeah. rather than the process. Of the process. Yeah. Spending time together. Like it doesn't matter if you're good at it or not. Let's just go do it. It'll be fun. I think there's another thing we have to deconstruct here, and it gets back into that vocabulary thing in terms of accessibility of these things. You know, one of the, things, the ways I approached, uh, I, I used to teach different drawing classes and stuff in the prison, and one of them was, uh, uh, this prison thing is really informing this conversation for me here, <laughs> but um, kid would say they didn't draw, but he just wanted to hang out in my class because they, they said I was a wacko, and he wanted to see what it was about and everything, and I said, what do you mean you don't draw? He said, I don't draw. I said, really, what's drawing? And over a period of conversation, Socratic-ish, right, uh, I'd get him to finally say it's making marks on a piece of paper. And I'd say, can you make marks on a piece of paper? He said, yeah, of course I can. What are you saying? I said, then you can draw, so let's stop this conversation and get to work. I said, my job now is to help you develop the skills to make those marks say what you want them to say. Right? It's the same thing with music. You say, oh, I don't do music. What's this? It's a noise. What's this? Oh, that's a rhythm. You know music. <laughs> now we've got to put some work in so you have some control over this so that you can say what you want to say, right? So when we talk about judgment. We talk about access. We talk about a lot of it's in the sort of classist fucking elitist way that we, we, we've set this up. You know, we can break these things down that anybody and everybody can have access and understand how this all works. Now, you got to put the work in, no matter what, right? So I'm going to rewind a little bit, I think. At the beginning, um, you talked about how people, and I guess brands and design crave, like, authenticity and genuine human connection. And then a little while ago, you were talking about how you felt you had to kind of tone it down when you were interacting with other people and kind of perform this tone back the authenticity a bit. Are you talking to me? Yes. Okay, yes. Um, so I was just wondering your thoughts on performative authenticity, mm. like, in the design world. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, like, you see, like, a lot of recent ads are, like, kind of trying to reach out to, like, younger generations, like Gen Z and millennials, and be like, oh, like, we understand that struggle buy our app or whatever. And just, so how, I guess I want to know your thoughts on that topic and kind of how you balance wanting to be truly authentic with the knowledge that it's trendy. So, so you kind of brought up two things. There's, there's 
performative authenticity, and then there's marketing to try and sell more products to somebody based on trends, which isn't really necessarily authenticity. There's a, a, an idea called purpose washing, where a lot of big brands are hiring marketing firms to help trumpet their purpose because they know that millennials and, and younger generations are really interested in like voting with their dollars and buying into a company that has a soul and, and a purpose. So they've caught on and they're making marketing about their purpose. But is it authentic? Not if it doesn't line up with your actions. No. Performative authenticity, I'd say there's a, there's a area of needing your messaging to do some work so that your authentic creation can get through to the people that it needs to get through to. So whatever you are able to do in terms of greasing those skids and providing that so that the messaging can sort of carve a path for the creation to get through, if it's all aligned, then you're authentic. Even if you're maybe turning it on a little bit or being, you have to pull from a side of yourself that's more extroverted than you normally would be. But if you're being somebody else or serving a purpose that's not aligned with your authentic purpose, then, then it's not. Can I give you another one? Yeah, a little story. So this actually happened, and it happened once, and then it was effective, so it happened more than that, right? You're talking about, and I don't even know if I'm using the idea correctly of performative authenticity, but this is my version. So I'm on the 20-something floor of some building, and I'm negotiating with a bank vice president, and I'm trying to get some resources here for the greater good, okay? I'm motivated. I'm in a suit, no tie, never a tie. I don't hang a noose around my neck in front of a mirror. Not happening, right? Somebody else is going to have to do that. But I'm in a suit, and I begin to lose their attention. So what do I do? I take off my jacket, and my authentic self appears. I regain their attention. They're titillated, right? And the conversation sort of takes on a whole new vibe. Because now they're like getting down and dirty a little bit. They're like, wow, cool, right? And, 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 and it was effective. And I did it again and again. And I started to realize that the person that I am, because when I first started interacting with people in power, I was shy, reticent, felt overwhelmed. I didn't know the language. I was so damn intimidated, you know? Then I began to understand the power of my own authentic self and how it could be. Now, there's a, there's a slickness to it. You, you gotta learn how to do it. Not, and I'm not with the intention of offending, but you start to realize that there's power in who you are. And how do you use that? How do you work it? And that, you know, in, in, in that, that same rehab program I was talking about, we used to call it, uh, um, constructive manipulation. <laughs> right? Um, so I don't know if that relates at all. But, I, you know, I, th- I think being yourself has power. How you work that, well, that's the art of it, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. This being held at RISD, where we have students and teachers, you know, uh, cultivating uh, creativity, uh, but also being in America, where it's a race to the top, 
How would you say those who have both, you know, been students and taught here, how do you manage supporting those beside you that you're also competing with? Because that's something that happens in the classroom with the students, but also then in business. And if we're trying to grow this community uh, of creativity and make it as inclusive as possible, there's a lot of moments in design where it's a very uh, uh, s- uh, solo experience um, where you're just trying to get your brand and your message across and not necessarily supporting those next to you. I think that we all have to look to each other. And I, I look at it as like studio culture. So when we're um, in a studio environment, you know, in a, I think a successful studio environment, you're sharing ideas. It's cross kind of pollination of ideas. And it's not about someone stealing your idea or ownership or fear of being knocked off or whatever. And that, that extends into business as well. So like when I, with my company, um, I, we, had relationships with other makers and designers in the area. We really had outreach with um, not only in Rhode Island, but, uh, you know, around the country and shared kind of resources and everything about what uh, we did. And in my opinion, I, I actually think that a critique of American business and design culture is that it's a li- it's not as um, supportive, I think, as, as it could be. Um, I think that there is this sense of, the only way you can be on the top is to be maybe um, more successful than someone else when in fact I think as we've spoken about in the group tonight the more successful we are as a group the kind of tides you know ships go you know rising ships with with all tides kind of thing and I I think I would kind of challenge everyone in the room and listening you know to say the success of my neighbor the success of the firm next to me the success of of my greatest competitor is better for me as well and that we should um, support one another and I, I saw it a lot I actually I, I felt you know I only I'd been I went to Milan and uh, this year to Salone and I was like we, we got to do it like that like we got to like be at a table having an amazing cocktail and great food and and everyone is amazing and doing excellent work and we're and we all want to be the best and we all celebrate one one another and I think we can, I think we do do that in pockets here, um, in America, but I think we could be doing a much better job. And I think that's a good challenge for the group to think about. The race to the top is sort of the wrong race to be in. It's like if there's one tree in a forest that reaches a higher point in the sky, but the rest of the forest is barren, that's not an ecosystem I want to be a part of. But if there's do you know roots talk to each other under the ground of the forest floor? <laughs> and if you share resources and talk to each other and help the whole forest grow up healthy, then you support an ecosystem that not only supports the trees, but the, that people come to, that animals come to, that all this other life flocks to and is supported by. And so, yeah, racing to the top and wanting to be better than somebody else is not really a great measure. So yes, I, I feel it in the culture and I say opt out, opt out of that part of the culture and instead try and work for a more fertile, flourishing, biodiverse kind of ecosystem that is supportive of all kinds of life. But I also think that really specifically, um, 
gets to the need for representation and not just like a lip service representation of like, wow, RISD so international and, and we represent the world here. It's being really intentional about who you're surrounding yourself with and making sure they're actually from different places um, and speak different languages and are different ages um, and have different interests because if you're bringing enough people from different places, you're not competing um, and you're just learning in extremely different ways because people have such different values. Um, but you have to be really intentional about that. You can't, you can't just let it fall in your lap. You have to seek those out. You have to nurture those relationships and you have to be okay with being challenged when um, that diversity actually comes to a head and creates conversation. And I think also the notion of race to the top implies that everyone's doing the same thing and you're trying to find out who's doing it the best. And in fact, I think creative practice now is so um, multifaceted that really one of the important things about being a creative practitioner is to learn the language, to collaborate, and to share different aspects of the creative process with other practitioners, which in and of itself is not a hierarchical thing. It's a It's defining a kind of collaborative community, and I think the design uh, businesses that I see that are that are actually succeeding, whether or not I don't know whether they're at the top or the bottom or in the middle, but that 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 are actually succeeding are learning the language of collaboration at a at a very authentic level. I think it was mentioned the idea of values. It's about core values. Capitalism, we know what it is. It's not going to go away in a hurry. I can guarantee you that. But the reality of it is it has a set of values that drive it, which is about acquisition, about growth, about greed and power and all of these kinds of things. That's what we're fighting. It's global. Ever since China joined the religion, it's global. Okay? Um, and that's what we're up against. And those of us that have these certain ideals and stuff like that, and you think it's going to be easy when your core values are completely against the, the, the what it is. We got to get back to the commons. We really have to begin to understand, as has been mentioned in so many good ways, the interconnectedness of us all and that that core belief that if we raise the boat for somebody else, it's good for everybody and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, the species is at risk, <laughs> in my opinion. I've always thought we were a little overrated as a species in the first place, <laughs> but, you know... There's some hope, you know. Uh, anyway, you guys are well, great. <laughs> well, I think that wraps it up for us. I want to thank Design Week Rhode Island for hosting, Rhode Island School of Design for hosting at this venue. And I want to thank our panelists, Sarah Osana, Sophie Chen, Bert Krenka, President Summerson. And I want to thank you all. That's all we have for tonight. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information and links to RISD designed by RI and our special guests, read the show notes, either by clicking the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or going to cleverpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Please subscribe, rate, and review Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. You can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.